a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can also find our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. Get those thumbs moving on those little buttons. Go to nhtalkradio.com if you don't have access to terrestrial radio. And I am joined today by... Chris Ryan. Chris is looking a little sleepy today. He's sleepy, Chris Ryan. That's the kind of thing that Donald Trump would say about him. Sleepy Chris Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Slung back in his chair, looking very relaxed. Folks, if you could see him now, you would not see... If I go back another 10 degrees, I will be asleep. (laughs) He will be asleep. He's got his feet up. He is ready to rock, roll, and rumble here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes for this week, because... I'm just bursting with energy. I just came back from Detroit, the Motor City. Now, I'm not going to sing you any Motown, um, but it was a pretty incredible experience to be part of the Democratic debates um, in Detroit. Detroit is a city that is on the total rebound. It's, a, it's really fascinating. The, I've always wanted to go to that theater, the Fox Theater. The Fox Theater. You, had you been there before? No, I hadn't. The Fox Theater is just incredible. I mean, I'm a theater guy, and it is one of the most beautiful theaters I have ever seen. It's like it's like a a, a genie with a Midas touch went in, and everything he, he touched turned to gold. It's 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 extraordinary. The detail and you the details shoes? are incredible. You took off your shoes. Yeah, my shoes are off because it's summertime, baby. Hot time, summer in the city. <laughs> Going on. Back of my neck, getting dirt and gritty. <laughs> you can't do that. I can. It's. Uh, I can. Yeah, there's. There's. <laughs> I can. Yes, I can do anything because it's my show, and I yeah. paid for this microphone, yeah. Mister Green. So um, this is my show, my yeah. microphone, and I can take my shoes off. But so Detroit was really interesting. Uh, we stayed in a hotel, and and I I'm not a gambler, but uh, I stayed in the. Motor City Casino and Hotel. From the outside, as you approach this hotel, the entire out exterior of the hotel is ringed with giant fluorescent lights. So at night, you've got a hotel which is really a light show. And it changes every night. Sometimes it's striped, sometimes it's not. And it's blinking on and off. But the real news is inside this hotel, and I hope none of you are passionately connected to the Motor City Casino and Hotel because I'm going to lay down some big truth about this place. (laughs) So it's it's basically a casino with a stack of rooms on top, but it's like Las Vegas meets an airport. Okay, I mean, you walk into this hotel and... and So were you at this hotel by your own... 
How did you get to the hotel? I got to the hotel because uh, I'm working for a campaign. Yeah, which we can't disclose here. Well, everybody knows what it is. Well, they, we still not. Gonna I'm not even going to talk about yeah. it. Uh, but so I'm working for a campaign. Yeah. Uh, the, the campaign. If I take shots at your candidate, you can then talk about your candidate. It's going to be just like a debate. The campaign told yeah. me where to stay, okay. so that was cool with me. And so I walk into this place, and 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 what it if really your candidate is, is mentioned. You it, can be. You can. You can defend. Yeah, these are the ground rules. But her but, or him. Okay, but I'm just talking about the yep. hotel. I'm not talking about a candidate okay, yet. Okay. I'm just talking about the hotel. And you walk in and you come up this two story escalator from the casino valet parking area. And immediately it's they've they've got apparently got a huge live music venue built in called the soundboard. And you see this big poster for all the acts that are coming, big time acts. And on the left you see the entrance to the casino. Now, I confess, I never got into the casino. I didn't do any gambling. But they've got this big sign there that says, Dissociated Persons. If you are a disassociated person, you will be denied entry. Now, I haven't even looked up what a disassociated person is, but I don't know I whether feel like that, that's me. It might be somebody, <laughs> I, I somebody like, who they're not going to let. They're not going to let into the gambling yeah. area clearly for whatever reason. But the place is filled. It's rocking and rolling 24 hours a day. The hotel, they tell me they, sold, they sell out every night. But you know how hotels have places for you to eat, right? You know, every hotel has some kind of place to, for you to eat. But in this hotel, it's like Las Vegas meets a really bad airport. You, the, the places to eat are in a airport-style food court. It's really... It's this odd sensation of I may have flown in, but I might as well just have stayed at the at the airport and never come because it's just like the airport, except the food isn't as good. You've got the, this food court, and the prices are are pretty crazy, and the food really was was pretty awful. But the room the room was nice, and I was mostly mostly working with my unnamed candidate. The secret candidate who... Um, so, I'm not seeing disassociative persons. I am seeing disassociative disorder, which may, I think, maybe the same I don't know a whether, person... I don't know whether it means a person... Categorized who, by involuntary escape from reality, oh. by a disconnection between thoughts, identity, consciousness, and memory. Well, maybe they mean if you're disassociating and you don't know where you are, they don't want you gambling. Maybe it means they've disassociated you from the casino for whatever reason. Who knows <laughs> what, it, what it means? But I'll tell you, if you, got trapped in, if, if you got trapped in that hotel for more than a day or two, or you'd disassociate. You'd walk around. You wouldn't know where you were, <laughs> what was going on. Am I in an airport? Am I in a hotel? What am I doing here? How do I get out of here? But one of the days, I took a walk through the neighborhood in Detroit, which is the on the other side of Highway 75, this hotel's on the other side of Highway 75 from downtown. So you got to walk through the neighborhood surrounding the the hotel, and it's pretty interesting because everywhere I went, people were telling me how Detroit was coming back, and that the mayor was doing a great job. That a guy named uh, Dan Gilbert, who I think runs Quicken, had invested has invested something like 5.6 billion dollars in the downtown. He's brought up bought up all the real estate, and in fact, when I finally got to the downtown, it it's starting to look like a real place because I was in Detroit 10 years ago. 
there was the Renaissance Center, and the, it was like that was it. It was it was pretty, pretty incredibly uh, tough place. So, but walking through this neighborhood was really interesting because there were a few houses that were standing that weren't fixed up. There were houses that were standing but boarded up. Mm-hmm. There were industrial buildings with no windows and clearly unoccupied or or boarded up. There were some new construction, people building new houses and fixing things up. And then there was lot after lot in this pleasant kind of leafy neighborhood that had been scraped. You could you could basically see these lots had that that the houses had just been torn down. Mm-hmm. And they were scraped. It was, it was a pretty, pretty interesting kind of juxtaposition between what was coming back already in Detroit and where you could see the possibilities. Because, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it's like okay, maybe now's the time to invest in Detroit because the real estate is is not very expensive. There's a lot of construction and building to be done, and people and businesses are starting, you know, starting starting to come back. It's um, it was an interesting place because, you know, the, it's the Motor City, and union membership there is very, very strong. Now, some of the interesting conversations I had um, on my way from the airport to the fabulous uh, Motor City Casino, Hotel, Clam Bar, uh, a men's clothing store, and food court, um, I had a beefy uh, driver. Looked like a former football player gone to seed. Looked kind of like you, Chris Ryan. And <laughs> and uh, he had his baseball cap on and his muscle T-shirt. And, and, and in the first three or four minutes of the ride, I learned that he was a big fan of Donald Trump. Yeah. That, that the, he said the country need, needed a CEO. I don't, he said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of everything he says. Uh, but we needed a CEO. We needed somebody strong, and he's strong, and 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 that makes me feel really good. And it, during the conversation, he told me that eight out of ten people that he's been driving are for Donald Trump. Um, but I had a conversation. Yeah, after he tells him that he's for Donald Trump. Well, I, I had a conversation with him, and the conversation went like this. So I said, uh, "How many jobs are you working?" He said, ah, man, I got two, two, sometimes three jobs. I got two kids in college. Uh, we can't afford that. I'm divorced, and uh, I got to work two or three jobs. Hold on, hold, hold on here. You said this guy reminded you of me. That's right. I am not nearly old enough to have any children in college, first off. Yeah, but it was just the general demeanor, the general look. It's like the, I, there's it's nothing like, similar. Like, You've not brought like, up anything similar between yeah, me yeah, and this yeah. guy yet. Yeah, well, you're both kind of tall, beefy Irish looking guys. Irish looking guys. Kids in college, yeah, right. divorced, yeah. working yeah. eight jobs. I, I looked at him and I said, that's like Chris Ryan gained 40 pounds <laughs> and was an ex cop, which is probably <laughs> an, a, an occupation that suits you pretty well. Uh, ex cop, I mean. So this guy was an ex cop. Yeah. And he had two kids in college. He had to work two or three jobs. I said, so you're working two or three jobs. I said, did you know that with the tax cut that the Republicans and Trump uh, put out, that 83 cents of every dollar went to the very, very top? He said, no. Is that real? I said, yeah, it's real. I said, that means that you got played. He said, 
He said, I, I haven't seen any big bump from that tax cut. I said, I know most people's taxes did not see any kind of bump except the very top. I said, did you know that 1% of the top wealthy in the country own more wealth than 90% of the bottom and that in the past 10 years things have just gone all their way? He said, no, I, I, I didn't know that. I said, so that's not, that's, that's not great, is it? And I said, so uh, how's the weather? He said, hot. It's all the time. It's hot. We never used to have weather like this. I said, so the, uh, the weather's changing. And I said, so the science is in, and these guys aren't doing anything about it. And, and are you a guy who uses that kind of language all the time around people? Are you a guy who goes around insulting people all the time? He said, no, no. He said, well, you've given me a lot to think about the end of our conversation. I'm giving you the short form. And he said, I, you know, I allowed us how while I was here for the Democratic convention. Didn't tell him which candidate I was working right. with. Told him I was a former congressman, though. That really, that impressed him not. Uh, you know, he didn't, you know, I'm, I'm simply. He asked for the money up front. Congressman's just part of the problem. <laughs> he, he held on to his wallet is what he did. Held yeah, on wanted, held wanted, on his wallet. He wanted a fare before he got, before he got little, in the car. Just a little tighter. <laughs> Pay up front. Yeah. But anyway, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating. He said, so who are the Democrats got? He said, uh, he said, I couldn't vote for Hillary. I mean, my God. And he said, no, they got. We need somebody strong. I mean, if Democrats <laughs> put somebody up, you know, maybe I'd think about it. But who have they got? And he started running them down. He said, Biden, forget about it. That guy's so old. He said, uh, and Bernie, he just yells at everybody. He's a socialist. And, uh. And said, who have they got? And I said, so, I said, could it be a woman? And there was a pause. Beat, 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 <laughs> beat, beat. He sat there thinking you could see the steam coming out of his ears as he was thinking. And he said, well, maybe, is what he said. <laughs> well, maybe. And I thought after that conversation, that gave me a pretty good handle on where America is today. There we were in Detroit with an ex-cop working two jobs, sweating from the weather, not really a big fan of the language that Donald Trump uses, but he wants somebody strong. He wants a CEO type. And a man. And clearly a man. Two things off of that. Do you think that um, it was more of a leap for America to elect its first African-American president will be more of a leap to elect the first female president. Because I don't think that the majority of individuals, um, I wouldn't say the majority of individuals don't have the belief that he does in regards to women, but I would say that um, it is a, there is more sexism that exists amongst men in regards to a female president or even females and some females thinking about um, the, the fact of having a female president. Um, I think there's more sexism that exists than than racism. And that, that it could be any woman. It could be the most qualified woman imaginable. But for that individual, and I think for many others, there's the, eh, probably not for men. So here we are in Off the Record with Paul Hode celebrating the diverse phobias of America. We are celebrating the sexism, the racism, the homophobia, the xenophobia, I think celebrating the misogyny. Might be a bit of a 
we're examining, we're yeah, delving yeah, yeah, we into go. the dark psychic forces in America, the dark psychic forces of sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, which seem ascendant. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. The, you know, some people say that uh, I think people are thinking, well, the economy's pretty good, the unemployment's low, and stock market's up there. I say it's a house of cards, ready to blow over, and it's built on the fact that so many people aren't looking for work. You talk about low unemployment; people have given up. Um, but I think there, you know, the entrenchment of attitudes, sexism and racism, especially, and probably homophobia and probably xenophobia. There are attitudes that are deeply entrenched. I can't, I, I don't really have much of an opinion as to which is worse or which is more prevalent. It's from, because this is something for me that is really challenging because I, when I view individuals, I don't view them from any particular lens. And, um, you know, that you could look at a person and automatically make determinations about what they are capable of based upon their sex race or um who they love is um it's pretty it's pretty remarkable but as you referenced it is really entrenched within our country and based upon various experiences or upbringing and you know to to have that question and you asked him you know would you and this is uh, we all know people like this and uh but it's you ask the person that question and it's automatically a eh, which means probably not. It doesn't matter who the woman is, how qualified, or anything, and who they're running. They could be running against a, a, a dog catcher who has a, the, the intellectual capacity of a, a worm. Okay, and they're so, like, oh, I'm, I'm, that's so, a man, so I voted for the man. So here's, here's an answer. The answer is it's also generational. Mm -hmm. It's cultural, but it's also generational. For a lot of people who are younger... Um, the distinctions and phobias we've talked about have dis largely disappeared in a lot of areas of the country. But American culture uh, kind of uh, entrenches the stereotypes we've been talking about, and they are those stereotypes and the way people feel are going to impact the election that's coming up in 2020. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, and... Uh, you can archive, you can reach our archives there for your binge listening pleasure at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Don't go away. Thank you, Chris Ryan. But we're going to be back with a fascinating political conversation with my good buddy, Matt Robeson. Hit it. Ready. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hoods here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast now on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening pleasure. And I'm really pleased to welcome Matt Robeson back to the program. Matt is the blogger at amoreperfectunionforum.com. Matt is one smart guy who talks about politics from the uh, smart perspective, is what I guess I'd say. He manages to take the stuff that most of us get in the weeds about and make sense about it. Matt, welcome back to Off the Record. 
Thanks for having me. So, uh, what's going on with More Perfect Union Forum? Uh, com. What are you thinking about these days in the wake of the Democratic events, the debates, the big debates, two days of a food fight? What do you think? Well, food fight is right. I mean, I know people talk about President Trump uh, being a divider, uh, a divisive force. I didn't think that most people meant among Democrats, um, but that does appear to be what's happened. But as you know, you know, what I try and focus on on the site is trying to stay away from the week-to-week news and try and take sort of a longer-term perspective, or at least tie what's happening week-to-week to longer term. So, yeah, I mean, what I've been thinking about this week is how much does it really matter whom the Democrats choose to be their nominee this time? Um, and it's, it's kind of an interesting split case. Wow. Now, wait a second. Let me, let me just unpack that question. How much does it matter who the Democrats choose? I mean, that's... Can I, can I give a huge disclaimer up front? Yeah. There, there's no one who is a bigger advocate than I for the idea that it sure as heck matters in terms of winning, right? I mean, that's the whole point, I think, of this debate process. At least that's the way Democrats should treat it is trying to figure out which candidate shows the skills and the discipline and the ability to uh, do the campaign mechanics that are needed to beat Donald Trump. Everything else, as I've argued, I think, on your show before, everything else is, you know, commentary. It's, it's, it's second. So I, I do think it matters for winning. But as all of the discussions over the last two days have shown, there have been dive down into the minutia of Medicare for All and reparations and student loan debt forgiveness, and we think about the machinations of whose plan is better than whose, that's the question I really wanted to dig into is, all right, well, what's the upshot? What, what will it matter in terms of what Democrats want to achieve on their side of the aisle? Well, um, you're, so you're basically suggesting that no matter what the differences we heard about and boy did we hear about the differences you could you could fall asleep any number of ways to the <laughs> to the differences that were expounded will it be a two-year transition will it be a four-year transition will it be an option will it be a choice will it not be a choice what's going to happen um but all of it was was sleep inducing uh, policy. I mean, basically, and you know what was what was really fascinating, and and we'll get to the question that that you asked. But uh, you know, as a as a former member of Congress who was there when the Affordable Care Act was passed, to my uh, to my great, you know, to it meant the extinction of my of my political career at the time because everybody hated having health care. That was just it was going to be terrible. Um, but bringing up painful memories here, Paul. Yeah, bringing up painful memories. But but when you think about where the debate started way back when, and where it ended up, and what kind of sausage ended up getting made, there is a a pretty good argument that whatever anybody proposes is going to get so chopped up, mixed in with nuts and and berries, and then put in a casing that's unpalatable to uh, everybody and jam down uh, the throat of the public, 
that it's a it's an argument in favor of your hypothesis that it really it doesn't matter who it doesn't matter what that making the sausage is such an excruciating process anyway that um, anything will just come out looking unrecognizable on the other end yeah absolutely i mean that's one of the things i agree with you uh, and actually i think there are two points here um one is exactly the point you're making i find it interesting that having lived through that experience that Somehow Democrats seem to be thinking, and this is not the Castle Spurgeon song, the individual candidates. I know people have their favorites. Uh, I happen to like some of the, um, let's say, more progressive and idealistic candidates among the crop. Personally, I do. But it is interesting that they do lay out, and in fact, Elizabeth Warren laid out in exactly these terms, this idea that, you know, we have to be bold, let's not run for president, thinking about what we can't do. But we all are kind of, you know, agreeing to pretend like we haven't lived through the last 10 years of the painful Mitch McConnell-induced reality um, that governing is going to require compromises. There's a whole half of the country that Democrats have to reckon with um, that is overrepresented in the Senate. So I, I think you're 100% right. But let me, let me take your point and throw one back at you. I thought it was interesting. You were one of the prescient, at this time 10 years ago, you, you were one of the forward-looking people who, the, the first member of Congress from an early primary or caucus state to endorse then-Senator Barack Obama. Um, and I think history would say, you would probably say, you got it right. You think he was a great president. It's interesting to me that so many of the attacks leveled, especially against former Vice President Biden last night, amounted to an attack on the Obama record. What did you make of that? Do, do you think that Biden def- deflected that right? Do you, were you hearing the same thing? Uh, I'm not sure that um, Biden was as effective as he could have been in deflecting lots of criticism against him. He, um, I think, was surprised at the ferocity of the attacks against his past record, even though he said going into the debate that he was going to be prepared uh, to deal with it, um, you know, what whatever uh, people's past records, uh, it, <clears throat> I've always thought that in a debate, it's important to pivot as fa- as fast and hard as you can, and say, you know, look, rather than getting into the minutia of where 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 I was then, that was then, this is now. Let's talk about the future of the country and who's the guy in the White House that we're trying to beat. Uh, that's really what the American people want to know about, these petty attacks about uh, a bill I voted for or didn't vote for, uh, really are beside the point. Now, that said, uh, I'm not sure that he was effective in dealing with the um, Obama legacy, particularly um, uh, when it came to an immigration answer in which he he, he he basically said, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question about whether or not I did or didn't support the Obama record on deportating, de- deportations of, of immigrants. Uh, he basically simply punted that aside, and it didn't look great uh, when I saw it on television. Um, I wasn't in the room for that one, but it, that didn't look great. He looked really, really uncomfortable and in, in, and couldn't seem to figure out a way out, out of that. But it was interesting that Democrats, especially those uh, with uh, more progressive outlooks, uh, were, were going to go after 
uh, the Obama-Biden legacy as a way of undermining uh, the Biden candidacy. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on there. I think that's a great point. It's just it's interesting to me because it ties back to the discussion that happened on the first night. All the focus on Medicare for all it goes back to the point you were making a minute ago about the Affordable Care Act, and you know the real the real pain that um, has has been uh, gone through and undertaken to expand coverage to another twenty million. Twenty million is a big number. Twenty million is a big number in America. And no one is saying, and you said this 10 years ago, no one is saying that the job is done. Everyone can embrace that. But this idea, um, it, it seems like there is an implicit attack on many policy fronts uh, from many of the candidates on just what was accomplished um, under the Obama presidency. I find that interesting. Well, look, my, my sense uh, is that Obama... Uh, was not perfect, and 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 find me a president who was perfect, and I'll give you a two gold stars and a cup of hot coffee. Um, so you can wait for that for a long time because I don't think any president uh, is perfect. Uh, and when you get into office, you find all kinds of challenges to uh, the purity of politics, uh, principle, and perfection. And you've got to weave your way through a really tough time. You know. At, when I when I supported Barack Obama, uh, it wasn't uh, so much because I thought he was perfect. Uh, I did think he was a person of particular intelligence and grace uh, and integrity that I found really important. And, and in fact, during the course of his presidency, uh, there were no scandals. Uh, the family, his family, was um, a model of rectitude. Uh, they brought a honor and distinction to the White House, um, and and we we all uh, when we were there, um, and you were there with me, um, we were dealing with policies which we with which we sometimes disagreed, and had to take various votes and various positions, which um, were matters of of how how does it move the ball forward more than it takes us back and if so uh, you're going to vote for it because if you don't the alternative is a lot worse for a lot of people and Absolutely. and and that is uh, a a mode that a lot of people in the country uh, who are attached to the purity of principles and politics miss about what it actually takes to govern the country. So, Matt, let me take a break here. We're talking with Matt Robeson of the a More Perfect Union Forum dot com, a terrific blog. Um, we're going to take a short break. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at NHTalkRadio.com. We'll be right back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL, AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet, nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our shows archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we're talking with Matt Robeson, a really smart guy whose blog is amoreperfectunionforum.com, a big-picture, smart analysis of what's going on underneath the day-to-day, week-to-week, a food fight that characterizes so much of our politics. We're talking about the Democratic debates, what Democrats need to do, 
And whether or not it matters who the Democratic candidate is, Matt has a rather interesting idea that it may not matter. So, Matt, why do you think it doesn't matter? All right, let me give it to you in a nutshell. And I'm going to preface it by saying for Democrats who are a little turned off by the, you know, deep, detailed dive that we went through over the last two years, in the Dem- uh, two days in the Democratic debates on the various policy machinations, um, I think there, this is a good news story about why it doesn't matter. Um, but it starts um, in kind of a bad news story, which is in the last 20, 25 years, the nature of the power of the presidency has moved even further than it had in the even in the preceding decades toward um, an imperial presidency because Congress has lost a lot of its ability to fulfill its functions. It's become uh, a total gridlock and, and totally dysfunctional and presided over in the Senate by someone, Mitch McConnell, who's given up any pretense of pursuing anything other than pure partisanship. So with Congress kind of knocked out of the picture, what's happened is that presidents have a sort of a hidden superpower that no one thinks about and no one talked about. And that is the power to appoint the leadership of the federal agency. And people tend not to think about the federal agencies. And, you know, for your listeners, I mean, we, should, we, should we cover what we're talking about here for the agencies? Sure. Let's talk about it a little bit. So, you know, if you if you if you imagine and, and if you go to my blog site, you can see a, a picture of this. There's a nice little pie chart. But if you imagine the federal government spends about four billion uh, four trillion dollars a year. Um, and what we're talking about with the agencies are things like the State Department, energy, um, obviously all of the all of the uh, entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, the military, but also veterans benefits, the agriculture department, um, education and transportation and housing. And so directly, directly right there, the federal government manages one out of every five dollars in our economy. But if you think about that list that I just rattled off, that uh, those agencies have a sort of a force multiplier that goes throughout our economy and fundamentally influences uh, business and economic innovation and growth. It's been characterized as the most powerful source of economic growth and innovation ever created in human history. And that is the machine that the president assumes command of on day one. And that is the biggest difference maker in taking someone out of the White House, like Donald Trump, and putting in basically any of the Democratic candidates. (laughs) So where do you think the country's at? Do you think the country feels like, well, the guy, the guy's a loser. He's a, he's a, He's a thug, he's a bully, he uses bad language, he, he's, uh, probably, he's probably uh, committed crimes, uh, we're unhappy about all that, uh, but uh, gee, unemployment is low, and uh, the stock market's up, and uh, yeah, um, maybe, uh, maybe we should just ride this out for another four years, because whatever we think about the guy's personal behavior, uh, the economy's good. 
You know, I think um, there was an interesting set of focus groups undertaken, believe it or not, by the uh, National Republican Senate, Senate Committee. Um, so this is on the Republican side, but, you know, research is uh, good research is good research, um, and Democrats should pay attention to it. And I think what it showed is um, what a lot of uh, analysis um, has also been kind of leading up to, which is that people feel really mixed. Um, they feel really mixed about Donald Trump, even Republicans. They don't, they have this kind of split decision uh, on him where they don't think that he's particularly suited to the presidency. They, they don't think that he um, is someone that they would ask their kids to emulate. But they also are not unhappy with the policy outcomes um, that, that he's led to, and they do give him generally good marks on the economy. But even on the economy, to your point, people have mixed feelings. They understand that all the top-line numbers are good, you know, 3.2% growth in the second quarter for GDP and 50-year low unemployment. Um, I mean, those are, those are big numbers. But underneath it all, um, and this comes out in the Republican focus groups, there is an underlying stress. There's an underlying tension. Um, and that's something that, you know, Democratic pollsters who you talk to are also picking up in their research, um, which is that working middle-class Americans um, feel fundamentally insecure. Um, did you know that 71 million Americans, 71 million Americans currently have a debt in collection right now. So that's the kind of economic stress that people are under. So it's a it's a much more mixed bag. Um, I don't think that there is, I'd say it's a very unsettled time in the electorate, um, politically and economically. So, uh, you know, in our first segment today, um, Chris Ryan and I talked a little bit about Detroit and the conversation I had with a cab driver there about why he was a Trump supporter. And I gave him a few things to think about and who knows what he'll end up thinking about it. But one of the things I said was, you know, the economy is kind of like a house of cards. Uh, it, it stacked up pretty high, but all you have to do is blow on it a little bit, and the thing will all just come crashing down. And yeah, unemployment's low, but that's because people have actually stopped looking for work. Um, and people are working two or three jobs, uh, like this cab driver was. He's a former cop, uh, divorced, two kids in college, and he's working two or three jobs all the time to try to make ends meet. And, and, and that is causing, you know, yeah, I said, so you're under a lot of stress. He said, man, you can't even begin to understand the kind of stress I'm under. And, um, you know, and then, so we look at the democratic field and without even going into specific names, it, you really saw over these two days, not only just the, what I thought was an unproductive food fight about the minutia of, of healthcare, uh, issues that a lot of Americans don't really care about, because what they really want is, I want health care when I need it. I want to be able to uh, afford it and not have it cost so much. I don't want it taken away from me. I want it to be a good quality, and so I know I can talk to my doctor and count on it. That's what I think people 
really want, and I think it is deliverable in a couple of in, in a couple of different ways. But um, on on the twenty candidates that we've seen, and and even wrapping in all the candidates who are running, you have um, a, this split in the Democratic Party between um, uh, we'll call them centrists, um, and and they range in both sex and age uh, uh, among the centrists, and you have what we could uh, conveniently call progressives, and they range in sex and age on the progressive side. And on most issues, there isn't really that much daylight. And the fundamental goals uh, that join, that represent the values of the Democratic Party are, 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 weren't really talked about by most of the candidates in terms of goals and values and principles. Um, there were a few candidates who did, and because I work with one of the candidates, I won't get into specific names. So you've got this somewhat unified Democratic Party, and there may just be uh, small twists on whether we call something a progressive or moderate and the names we put on it. But in general, all of the candidates uh, uh, were not insulting each other in the kinds of personal terms that Donald Trump uses. They weren't calling each other names. They weren't belittling each other, even when they disagreed. They were uh, tough at times on each other, but not so tough that at the end of the day, they're not going to be able to shake hands, come together, uh, and and support a candidate, whoever it's going to be. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump is is somebody who... I think represents a whole uh, different uh, kettle of fish. He is not the usual politician, and I, we don't have time. And I'm not going to go into uh, how 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 bad he is. That's not the point of that I'm trying to make. But he is a completely different kind of political animal uh, than we have ever seen before. Quite brilliant about some things and operationalizing uh, and activating fear and anger. Um, and I don't know that there are many candidates on the Democratic side who can figure out that in the end, I don't think it's about plans and policies. I really do think there is some emotional uh, heartbeat of the American people that is waiting to be activated. Uh, waiting to be inspired and waiting to be operationalized so that you can form a coalition of those on the left, those in the center, um, uh, who realize that uh, whatever happens, uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is, um, you've got to kind of rebuild old coalitions, bring in some new people, and get rid of this guy. Um, and that seems to be that it, I think it's going to be a challenge. We have a very few minutes. Do you agree it's going to be a challenge? I agree. And, and since we're going to wrap in the next minute or so, I think you've kind of taken us really to the to the best point to end on. And I was really what you just said really was what I was driving at in my last piece, which is that the, the, the reason this is, it doesn't matter, and the reason that that's good news is that all of these differences are ultimately going to be immaterial. It's not going to change Mitch McConnell. It's not going to change the Senate. It's not going to stop the sausage-making process. Ultimately, 
95% of what's going to get done is going to get done and will get done by any, virtually any, of these 20 or so people on the stage who would put good, competent people in the administration. Um, a lot of Republicans would tell you that, too. So I think, at the end of the day, what Democrats should be thinking about going forward is your cab driver, your former police officer, who is working two and three jobs, and who still, despite that economic stress, is a Trump supporter. There are about 13% of Americans who seem to be truly gettable swing voters. In the 2018 midterms, those folks favored Democrats by 11 points. In 2016, they favored Trump by six points. If we win them in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, then the Democrats will win the 2020 election. And if they don't persuade your cab driver, then they will not. So, you know, we we don't have enough time to get into how to do that. But Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with you, and that is what Democrats should be thinking about going forward. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. We've been talking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back after this to wrap up. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at NHTalkRadio.com. And wrapping up this week's show, Chris Ryan and I talked about Detroit and the crazy hotel I stayed in, the Motor City Casino and Hotel. It's kind of the worst of Las Vegas combined with the worst airport you've ever been in in your life. And we talked with Matt Robeson, a really smart guy at AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, about what Democrats are facing in the 2020 election and what they might have to do in order to win. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. Thanks to our great listeners. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.